0: Good morning, church. <laughs> it is great to be back here. As I uh, I prayed, uh, Pastor Rob called me probably it's a little more than a month ago, told me he was going to be gone, and uh, asked me if I would come out again. And I said, you know, I've I've been waiting for you to call me, brother. It's been a, it's been kind of been a long time. I thought you had forgotten about me and. And he, thankfully, he hadn't, and uh, and so uh, I, I just—it's a joy to be here. It's a joy to see all of you. It's a joy to see, like I said earlier, the work of the Lord, and just just thankful for all the things that He is doing here. <clears throat> My voice—I'm going to see how this goes. <laughs> we'll uh, uh, we'll just uh, press through together. Uh, turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19 <clears throat> we're going to start in verse 29 we'll read uh, we'll read the passage and then uh, we'll come back and, and go through it and, and consider it so Luke nineteen twenty nine. and it came to pass when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples saying go into the village opposite you Where, as you enter, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here, and if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosening the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt and set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees <clears throat> called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. This is uh, what is commonly referred to as the triumphal entry. It's actually recorded in all four Gospels. Uh, before we dive into it, uh, we'll uh, <clears throat> just a little background of kind of setting the context and what's going on and what has happened up until this point. Um, this, there was a transition in Jesus' ministry. This is his third year of ministry, and he is heading towards Jerusalem, heading towards the cross. Uh, he said seven times in John, my hour has not yet come. Well, his hour is now coming, and it's looming, and he knows it. But there was this transition time, They were up in Caesarea Philippi, which is, uh, now I've never been to Israel, so those of you who have, you probably could help me out on this, but I have talked to people who have been there, and I have this really cool video that lays it all out for you and stuff, and um, it's like you're there, this video, probably not as good as, I know, I think you guys have been there, but, uh, but uh, uh, anyway, Israel Runs north to south, basically, and on the north end of Israel is the Sea of Galilee, then the the Jordan River, and on the southern end is the Dead Sea, and north of the Sea of Galilee, uh, Jerusalem is kind of, I'm sorry, back up a little, Jerusalem is a little west of the Dead Sea, west of, of the, the, the Jordan River. The north of the Sea of Galilee, which is the smaller body of water, fresh water, um, is, is, is Caesarea Philippi. And in Caesarea Philippi, this is where Jesus, with his disciples, he asks them in Matthew chapter 16, who do men say that I am? You guys probably remember that story. And Peter's great confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Well, from that time forth, from that confession, Jesus began to tell them, about his impending um, crucifixion and so forth in Jerusalem, so they begin to travel down, and they and they make their way back to around the Sea of Galilee. They go to uh, uh, I'm trying Capernaum, and uh, then they come down from there. And you can follow it in the Gospels. You kind of track where Jesus is going. They come to the east side of the Jordan River. They make their way down to. Um, Uh, through Perea, the region's called Perea, and and then they cross over the Jordan again, and they go into Jericho. Well, this is a a journey of more than 20 miles, and of course, they're going on foot, so they're journeying down, and Jesus is heading for the cross. Well, when they get to Jericho, um, this is where um, blind Bartimaeus, there was actually two blind men, but one of them's named Bartimaeus, this is where they received their sight, and as you may remember the story, in fact, right here in, in, in Luke chapter 19, Zacchaeus. This is where Zacchaeus is, is uh, uh, restored uh, to eternal life. He climbs the tree because he was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. You guys probably remember the little song. And, and uh, uh, this is where all that happens. Then Jesus leaves Jericho and he goes up to, <clears throat> to Bethany. Well, it's in Jericho, and you guys, I know uh, Pastor Rob is leading you through uh, the Gospel of John, at least that's what I was, heard, uh, was told, and it's in, it's in, it's in Bethany uh, that uh, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And so he comes to Bethany, this is on his right before the cross, he raises Lazarus from the dead, and this raising Lazarus from the dead is probably one of his most significant miracles of all the things that he did. Um... Because, I mean, he raised two other people, right? Uh, but they, were, they had just died. Lazarus had been in the grave for four days. And, you know, the, the process of decomposition, even, even Martha, you know, surely he, he stinks at this time. And, and uh, that had already begun to happen. And, uh, and, and yet, here he comes out. Well, great fame spreads upon hearing of this miracle. Not only that it's the time of Passover. And so Passover was one of the three feasts of Israel required in, in, in the Torah, in, the, in Leviticus, um, that all Jews were to, re- to return to Jerusalem and attend. So there are thousands of people who are coming, who are traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover. And Passover is the first of the year. It's the first of the year celebration. And so all of these people are in Jerusalem, all these people are in the surrounding region of Bethany, and they all hear of Lazarus being risen from the dead, and uh, uh, they, they, they come. And so a so little background, that's, that's where we are in the ministry of Jesus and, and, and throughout the Gospels here. So verse uh, 29, <clears throat> verse 28 there, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So here he goes. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethpage in Bethany at the mount called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples. Now, Bethany is not far from Jerusalem. It's it's like uh, about a mile, about a mile and a half. I mean, uh, as the crow flies, it's just over a mile, but the Mount of Olives is there. And so Bethany is and Bethpage is kind of on the road to Jerusalem. It's a little village um, that was there. They believe it's kind of on the north side of the Mount of Olives. At least that's what I read. Again, i haven't been there. But Bethany here, Mount of Olives, Bethpage, Jerusalem. Okay? So they're leaving Bethany, and they're heading toward Bethpage. <clears throat> and coming to Bethpage, Jesus sends two of his disciples it says here in verse 29, saying in verse 30, Go to the village opposite you, and where as you enter you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring him here. So <clears throat> they send, uh, the, he sends the disciples for the colt, Um, verse 31, if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who sent went their way and found it just as he said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to him, to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him, and they brought him to Jesus. So all of this is, all this happens, and presumably with Jesus and all of his travel, he doesn't have time to to set anything up, to make prearrangements for this. Um, perhaps he did. I remember, I, I, you know, I've, I've gone back and forth on this. You know, did he, you know, did he, did he set it all up ahead of time or did, you know, did he just do it? You know, and, and I kind of come, personally, I've come to, uh, well, he is God and he orchestrates everything and he, being omniscient, um, that is, knowing everything, he would know exactly where the cult was. And he would know uh, what the people would say. And he would know the temperament of the people who owned the cult. He would, the, 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 he would, he would know all of these things. And it, it happened just as, uh, just as he said. So they bring the cult back. And they, and, they, and they bring it to Jesus and they throw their clothes on it, on the cult. And then they sit Jesus on the cult. Um, <clears throat> so you have all these people. You have Jesus, you have the cult, you have the disciples. Picture the scene, if you will, with me. Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. Great fame is spreading. Everyone in the region there is coming to see. In fact, in John, in chapter 12, a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had risen from the dead. People want to see this guy. People want to see what's going on. Who is this man that raises the dead? For this reason they met him because they had heard he had done this sign. That's John chapter 12. And and so all of these people, so Jesus on the colt, all of these people, they come from Jerusalem. It'd be an easy, you know, afternoon, after lunch walk, if you will, to, to Bethany. And they form this procession. They set Jesus on this cult and they form this procession. So you can picture the scene. Thousands of people forming... A corridor, if you will, this procession as he's coming to, to Bethpage there and, uh, and um, ushering Jesus into Jerusalem. Now, this here, what is happening in verse 35? They throw their clothes and they set Jesus on him. This is a direct fulfillment of uh, uh, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Matthew 21 4 says, All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, this prophecy in Zechariah is a recognized messianic prophecy. It was written 500, roughly 500 years before this occurrence. And the crowd clearly understands what's going on here. The crowd sees what Jesus is doing, and you can tell that here by their response. They spread, they, they put their clothes on the, the colt, and they spread their clothes on the ground. We also know in other accounts that they took branches from the trees and palm branches down. That's why we call this Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter. Um, and uh, and they, they, they lay him out on the road. Now this is, you might say, well, what, what, why, why in the world would they do that? Um, in, in, uh, in ancient times, spreading one's clothes on the road and spreading branches on the road was, uh, was an act that was reserved for royalty. It was a way that a, an area or a town or a city would usher in a king. So if a king was journeying into a city, they would do that. They would form this procession. They would lay the clothes on the ground and the king would walk or ride in if you will, on the spread clothing. So, it's suggesting a couple of things. One, that they acknowledge who Jesus is claiming to be. They acknowledge what is going on here. They're also, it's, it's a form, it was a sign of submission that you submitted to the king. Now, this is unique because this Event is Jesus's public proclamation, which he orients, which he sets up, of uh, his uh, declaration to be the Messiah. This is also unique in another sense, because Jesus, as a rule, he never, in all of his public ministry, allowed himself to be publicly recognized or publicly identified. There are several examples of this throughout uh, the New Testament. Uh, In in Matthew chapter 12, he warned them, don't make this known. Uh, uh, There was actually a a, a fulfillment of prophecy from Isaiah where it says, he will not quarrel, and he will not cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the street, speaking of the Messiah. He wasn't going to make himself publicly known. You might remember like when he he, uh, would cast a demon out of someone and they would say, we know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Hold your peace and come out of him, right? He would would heal the leper. Don't proclaim this, but go and show yourself to to the priest as it says in, 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 in the law. On and on, the blind people that he would heal. Tell no one, see that no one knows this. But uh, you know, again and again, continually, he would not allow people to identify who he was. He would reserve himself. He would journey around to, to stay in small towns. He didn't stay in Jerusalem. He would always stay in Bethany. He'd go up to come. He was always in obscure places. He was going around proclaiming the kingdom of God. But he, didn't, he doesn't allow himself to, uh, to, to be recognized, except now, except here. This is the first time that he does it. He'll do it again, <clears throat> um, but this is the first time that he does it. Uh, you might remember in John chapter 6 when, when he fed the 5,000. They actually wanted him to be king at that moment. They, they said, this is that prophet that has come into the world, and they were going to take him by force and make him king. And the, the scriptures say that he got in a boat and he withdrew. He left them so, that as, so as to not allow them to, to, to do so. And he says, you know, my, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Well, now his time has come. And here he is. He is nationally presenting himself as Messiah and as the Son of God. And so, verse 37. So they cry with a loud voice for all the mighty works. Now they're crying out, Hosanna. This, this account is in all four Gospels. It's one of two things that are in Jesus' ministry that are in all four Gospels. The feeding of the 5,000, which I've already mentioned, is one of them. And this one is the other occurrence during Jesus' ministry. Of course, the cross and the resurrection, all of that is mentioned in all four Gospels. But here, hear this. So they're crying out, Hosanna. The other Gospels say, Hosanna. Literally, um, that's the Greek uh, interpretation of the, of the Hebrew phrase, save now. Lord, save now. And what they're doing is they're quoting psalm 118 25 again another recognized messianic scripture this particular psalm that they're quoting is part of the hillel and the hillel was a group of songs that they would sing during the feasts So it was a common thing that everyone would sing during the feast. It was a well-known group of psalms, a well-known portion of scripture. And it was also known when they would sing this uh, 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 Psalm 118 being the last part of the Hillel, they're anticipating the coming of the Messiah. So every year, three times a year, they would sing these songs and they would wait for the Messiah. Well, here, here comes the fulfillment of prophecy. Here comes the, the Messiah on the cult. Here comes the one who has healed and raised the dead and fed the, the multitudes. And Lord, Hosanna. And then, and then verse 38 there, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This, is this That's the second, that's verse 26 of Psalm 118. They're directly quoting the messianic psalm and attributing it to Jesus directly. Now this is significant. They understand Jesus' proclamation and they reciprocate and acknowledge his proclamation to uh, receive him as the Messiah. And send now, Lord... Send now. Um, in fact, uh, in the psalm, uh, the, the, the last part of the verse says, send prosperity. The other gospels say the same thing. Uh, just, you know, they, different gospels cite little parts of uh, the events. Uh, they may emphasize one portion of it, whereas another gospel may emphasize another portion of it. So uh, uh, th- this is the reaction of the crowd, but there is a mixed reaction. Let's look at verse 39. Some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would cry out. So different reactions. The Pharisees, they also understand what's going on. Of all people, the Pharisees know what's happening. They are the the ones who study the scriptures and interpret the law and so forth. They are the religious leaders. And they're saying... Rebuke your disciples, Jesus. They should not be doing this to you. This is not for you. They don't join in. They're indignant. This isn't right. The problem that the Pharisees have, actually it's the same problem that the people have, the people may not realize it at this moment, but they will. In five days, these very people will be crying crucify him. The Pharisees see this already. Wait a minute. You're not the Messiah. That's that's the Pharisees' reaction. Rebuke your disciples. You see, the problem that the Pharisees had was this. Jesus doesn't fit their mold. Jesus is not who they want the Messiah to be. Therefore the response. The people, they actually have the same response. They, they, uh, and there's a little clue of it in verse 37, it says, the people uh, there, it says, they begin to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. There, there's our clue. The people are praising Jesus for all the mighty works. But they're missing the important part. Now, of course, it's natural and it's proper for us to praise the Lord for his works. Of course, this, we, ju- we just did that. However, they're praising Jesus for his works. They're not praising Jesus for who he is. And there is the distinction. The Pharisees already understand this. If you're, if look, look back with me real quick. You're in uh, 1930. Go to 19, um, look at verse 11 of chapter 19. Um, Jesus had just, uh, you know, The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost, verse 10, verse 11. Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. This is another clue as to what is going on here. They thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately because Jesus was near Jerusalem. So Jesus tells the parable of the minas which is the talents, and he says, you know, a, a king calls his servants, he's going away for a while, and he's going to return, and he delivers them minas or talents. Do business till I come, verse 14. But the citizens hated him, and they sent a delegation after him, saying, we will not have this man to rule over us. That's the mindset Of the Pharisees, expecting the kingdom of God to come immediately. There's the populace, but here are the Pharisees. We will not have this man to rule over us. And here, right here, teacher, rebuke your disciples. You are not who we want you to be. You're not the you're not the Messiah. Why? What's going on? For all the mighty works. There's confusion as to who Jesus is and what Jesus really was about. Now, this is not unique to the Pharisees, and it's certainly not unique to the crowd. There are, others, there are many other examples, actually. In fact, um, if you, you won't, don't need to turn there, but if you go back, if, if you looked back in Luke chapter 7, verse 18, John the Baptist. Now, you might remember John the Baptist. You probably do. John the Baptist, who was John the Baptist? He was the greatest of all the prophets. He was the one who was the forerunner of the Messiah himself. So John the Baptist's ministry was to pave the way for Jesus to come, much like they were paving the way now. He was to pave the way for Jesus and announce the Messiah's arrival, and indeed that's exactly what he did. Well, in, in Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist is in prison. And John the Baptist has been in prison for a little while. And the reason John the Baptist was in prison is because after he baptized Jesus, you know, as he said, you know, he must increase and I must decrease. I'm just a friend of the, brideg- the bridegroom. Well, Jesus' ministry continued to grow and John the Baptist's ministry began to, to, to wane and, uh, and but all the while, John the Baptist was still proclaiming the truth. And at one point, Herodias leaves her husband and goes and goes with his brother. And, uh, and, and John the Baptist, speaking the truth, says it is not lawful for you to have her. You cannot have your brother's wife. Well, royalty doesn't really usually like. Those in power usually don't like to have things pointed out to them that they're doing wrong. And so what do they do? They take John the Baptist and they throw him in prison. Well, he sends, after languishing in prison for a little while, he sends a couple of his disciples to Jesus. And they they have a question. Are you the coming one? Or should we wait for another? Right? Are you you the Messiah? This is John the Baptist. It's crazy. You're the one that foretold the Messiah. Now, why in the world would he ask that question? Well, well, I think the the answer to that is, is, is self-evident. He's in prison. <laughs> Things aren't going the way he thought they were supposed to go. Hey, you're the Messiah. Now remember, Jesus is ministering in Israel during Roman occupation. Israel does not have national sovereignty like they do now. At that time, they were under Roman occupation and Rome-controlled Israel. John the Baptist is in prison, imprisoned by a Roman official, wondering, Jesus, when are you supposed to set up your kingdom? Why am I languishing away in this prison? What's going on? This isn't how this was supposed to work out. That's the Pharisees. This isn't how this is supposed to be. Goodness, the disciples themselves have this same thing. These are the ones that Jesus separated from everyone else and personally explained to them what the kingdom was all about. They had confusion. Look, look back with me there in, 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 in uh, Luke 18. You're in 19. Go back to Luke 18 and look at verse 31. Remember, Jesus is still on his way to Jerusalem. Verse 31 of chapter 18 of Luke Then he took the 12 aside and he said to them behold we are going up to Jerusalem and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the son of man will be accomplished for he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be de- and be mocked and insulted and spit upon they will scourge him and kill him and on the third day He will rise again. But they understood none of these things. And this saying was hidden from them. And they did not know the things which were spoken. They did not get it. You remember when when Peter made his great confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? And then it says, from that time forth, that's the transition, Jesus began to explain to them how the Son of Man will suffer and be crucified and raised again. Peter's very next sentence, no, Lord, This will not happen to you. That's not the plan. We're going to rule and reign with you. You can't be crucified. And what was Jesus' response? Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. You are always opposing the things of God, right? From then on, Jesus has continually repeated to the disciples what was going to be happening. But they weren't hearing it. They were confused. There's other accounts where it says they were afraid to ask him. So it's like there's this elephant in the room and they don't want to, well, I don't want to talk about it. And it's, it's there. Everybody knows it's there, but nobody wants to mention it, right? The disciples were confused. John the Baptist is confused. Certainly the Pharisees who were opposing Jesus, the, the multitudes, they're all confused. The confusion is who Jesus is and what is Jesus here to accomplish? He was here to set up his kingdom, but they misunderstood what the very nature of that kingdom was going to be. This is actually quite comforting to me. (laughs) I don't know about you guys, but it's comforting to me because so much of the time I fall into this very same thing. I am very often confused as to what in the world are you doing, Lord? I do not understand why this is going on. I thought that you were going to do this, and now, left turn, you know? (laughs) You're just like, ugh, you know, where, what, am I, do I even know you anymore? I mean, sometimes you're just so confused, overwhelmed by circumstances. Lord, but this isn't what you told me. This isn't what you explained to me. Remember, we were praying that time. I was praying and you spoke to my heart. Remember, but why this? Why is this happening now? But all the while, back in chapter 19, Jesus, I had already mentioned, he's riding on a colt. He's coming into Jerusalem. That prophecy was spoken of 500-ish years before he does it. But the exact day of his coming into Jerusalem, it was actually 9 Nisan 30 AD. Now, Nisan is not a car. Well, it is a car, but in in, in here. But Nisan in Israel is the first month of the Jewish calendar. Okay, it's our April, right? But uh, the 9th of Nisan. Now, why is that significant? Because the prophecy that Zechariah gave, the prophecy in Psalms, there was also another prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. You don't need to turn there for the sake of time. But in Daniel chapter 9, God told Daniel while they're in captivity that the Messiah was going to come, and he named the exact day. He said from the going forth of the proclamation to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which is actually Nehemiah chapter 2, from that proclamation until Messiah the prince will be uh, seven sevens and 62 sevens. Okay, so 69 sevens or 60, 69 times seven. 483 years. So from that proclamation, which we know happened in Daniel chapter two, 483 years later to the very day the Messiah came. Guess what that day was? <laughs> 30 Nisan, right? 30 AD. Not nine, nine Nisan, 30 AD, I'm sorry. You see, who can do that? I, as, as I studied this passage, you know, the things that the Lord speaks to you, you know, you study, when you're studying for, 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 a, for a Bible study or a sermon or whatever, you study for yourself first. Because the Lord has to speak to you. If, if the Word of God doesn't come in power to you, it won't come in power through you. Your life must be changing if someone else's life is going to be changing. A transforming life, the one that the Lord is transforming, another life can be transformed. That's the whole idea of discipleship. So that as you're growing in discipleship, you are growing and the person you are leading in discipleship is also growing. You can't can't lead someone where you're not going. If you haven't been there, how in the world are you going to tell them? If you're going they know where to go also. I mean, these are just, these are fundamental principles. But, but see, Jesus proclaims, Jesus does. God has made all of these prophecies. And what happens? It comes to pass on the exact day. Why? If there's one thing that this passage teaches us, it tells us that God is sovereign. God is in control and he is over all things. There is no possible way. I think it's 173,880 days to the very day that Jesus, on a cult, which was foreplanned and foreordained to be there with the owners and all the stuff exactly where it was supposed to be and Jesus, all of that is just lining up just right 500 years ahead of time to the very day. See, only God can do that, and that demonstrates that God is sovereign. That also is quite assuring because when the confusion comes and the difficulty arises, the thing that we can be absolutely sure of is that God rules. He is in control, and He knows what He's doing. I, uh, I wrote down some verses, uh, just some verses about God's sovereignty. If you want to jot them down, you can. Um, Psalm 115, verse 3, But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135, verses 5 and 6, For I know that the Lord is great, and our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven, and in earth, in the seas, and in all deep places. Isaiah 46.10, God declares the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do my pleasure. God determines things long before they happened, and, and they will happen. It happened exactly here. Why? Because God is sovereign. Only God can do that. Only God can prove and say this is what's going to happen, and it actually does. This is what proves that he is God. Daniel 4.35, All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of earth no one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? No one can do that. He does what he pleases. Ephesians 1, 11. In him, in Jesus, we have attained inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. God does. Uh, Psalm 103, verses 15 through 19. As for man, his days are like grass. As the flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone and his place its place remembers it no more but the mercy of the Lord is everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children to such as keep his covenant and those who remember his commandments to do them the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all God is sovereign Now there's, of course, Romans 8, 28. You guys probably know. This is another verse of God's sovereignty. That God is working all things together for the good of those who love him to those who have been called according to his purpose. That's also a verse about God's sovereignty. That everything that's going on in our lives, those who love him, is according to his perfect plan and he is working it out. The Pharisees do not understand this. The crowd does not understand this. John the Baptist, the decide Everyone is missing this. We miss this. I know I certainly do. But God is in control. We don't get to, we don't get to decide what God does or does not do. The Jews are rejecting their Messiah. And just because they reject their Messiah, that doesn't change the fact that he is the Messiah. We're not giving the option of negotiation in defining who Jesus is. We don't get to define reality. God is the one who defines reality. When we come into existence, we stand before a God who made us and owns us. It is he who determines our days and not we ourselves. It is he at the same time who loves us and has made himself known to us. But he rules. God rules. So they're crying out, rebuke your disciples. Jesus, verse 40, he, answered the, he answers uh, the Pharisees and says to them, I tell you that if these should keep quiet, if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Why? Why would the stones cry out? Because God's counsel will stand. Because this was the day. Because the prophecies will come to pass. Everything that was spoken of Christ happened. So if they were quiet, the stones would cry out. I kind of... In in a weird way, I wish they would have been quiet because it would have been really neat to see the stones crying out and go, "Whoa, you know, you know, the hills are alive with the sound." Right? I, uh, uh, you, uh, you, you, you can see in Scripture there are examples, right? In Scripture where where uh, creation is spoken of creation as worshiping God, and indeed creation does. All of uh, all of creation proclaims uh, the Lord's praises. We see that in Psalm Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. And day unto day they're uttering speech and night unto night they're, they're pouring out knowledge. There is no place where their voice is not heard. Creation is speaking of the glory of God and proclaiming the majesty of God. In Romans 8, of course, it says that creation is groaning at the same time. Waiting for the the adoption, we groan for the redemption of our bodies. Creation is groaning along with us. You know the weight of difficulty in life, and you're just like, ugh. You know we're all groaning. Creation is groaning along with us. But the stones would have cried out because when God says, His word comes to pass. Because his word is absolute. Because his word is authoritative. Because his word shall stand. Jesus himself said, heaven and earth will pass away. Everything you know, all of the rocks, everything that you think is reality, that's going to end. But my word will not pass away. You can be absolutely sure there is one thing that will happen and one thing that is eternal, and it is God's word. Praise God. Amen. Because it's his word that transforms, isn't it? It's his word that changes our life. I was speaking to somebody earlier this morning, and they were saying, ever since I started studying the Bible, my whole life is different. Now everything that goes on in my life is is because of God's word. Jesus has completely changed me. He's changed me too. And it's his word that's done it. And as we know and, and interact with God through his word, so we know God. And as we get to know his word, so we get to know him. Jesus, the stones will cry out. So, he draws near, verse 41. He saw the city and he wept over it. Now that's really interesting. He weeps over the city. <laughs> People are praising I mean, there's thousands of people. You know, you are great. Hosanna in the highest and all this, right? Imagine the disciples. I mean, it's a, a banner day for the, for the disciples, isn't it? I mean, they're just like, yes, here, here it comes, the kingdom. Here. We're here. This is going to be great. We're all going to rule with Jesus. and you, They're all giddy. They're all just probably all. When someone speaks well of you, how do you normally react? When a whole bunch of people speak well of you, What's, what's the, what's the, you know, you're just like, well, actually, yes, uh, you know, please continue, right, you know, no, 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 don't stop, no, don't, don't stop, don't stop, you know, you're, you it's just like, that's, that's my favorite subject, please, you know, on, on, let's, 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 let's hear more, um, but yeah, no, Jesus weeps, Jesus weeps, he, he cares nothing for the praise of men, The empty praise of men. Those men who are praising him for what he does, but not praising him for who he is. He weeps. Why is he weeping? Because he sees the end. Now, there are two words for weeping in Scripture. One, of course, in in John 11, 35, Jesus wept. That that word uh, is kind of a... Uh, like a, a private crying you 're standing if you will, and stream, streams of water going down your your face, but you're, this word is different. This word is the word for uncontrolling sobs. Jesus is sobbing. He is have you ever seen someone just sob uncontrollable, inconsolable just there 's no pretense any longer it's just, they're just pouring it out. And there's no holding it back. That's what Jesus is doing here. Why? He's weeping, verse 42, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day. Jerusalem, if you knew, this is your day. Those are probably some of the saddest words Because they didn't see it. They missed it. Why? Because they weren't willing. They had their eyes fixed on material things. They didn't have their eyes fixed on the spiritual. And it blinded them. In this your day, the things that make for your peace, if you would receive me as I am, peace would come. But now... They are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come when enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side. And that indeed happened. They they will level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. There's the reason. Jesus came, specifically said, on the specific day, fulfilling specific things, exactly how it was supposed to be exactly as it was, and they did not know the time of their visitation. They wanted a different Messiah. They wanted him to feed them and overthrow Rome and liberate them and give them some temporary satisfaction. Jesus didn't come to do that. He came to rule and to reign but to rule and reign in hearts. Everyone is given a day. This entry into Jerusalem is like like Jesus' entry into our lives. How did he come into Jerusalem? Welcomed. Wide open. No resistance paving the way for him. Come. Come. The same must be true for our hearts. To receive the Lord, no hindrance, no pretense, no no, uh, condition. Nothing to your cross I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Lord, come. You come in me. You are welcome here. Here. Come in me, and you reign in me. Jesus didn't bring an army. He didn't have swords. He came riding on a colt, on a donkey. He came in humility. So we must welcome him the same way. We must welcome him and humble ourselves before him. As Jesus comes into your life, he comes, he comes willingly as we willingly receive him. He will not force, he will reign, but it involves my surrender, my submission to his lordship. It's not just saying some words or mouthing some prayer. It's submission to his lordship. It's allowing him to reign in me. There is only one throne in our heart. And there's only room for one person on it. And it's either Jesus sitting on it or me. And Jesus comes to reign. But he he comes for more. Let's read on. Verse verse 45. Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves." Jesus, he comes into Jerusalem. Where does he go first? He goes into the temple. He doesn't go to the Romans. He doesn't go to overthrow Rome. He goes where real reform happens. Where the house of God, see, change happens in the house of God. Transformation, the kingdom of God, doesn't come with observation, it's one heart at a time. You want to change a culture? One person at a time. Jesus didn't mobilize a a political army, he didn't mobilize a military army. He sent out 12 men who, uh, uh, through the, the working of the Holy Spirit, had the world transformed. And it was one heart at a time. Because real reformation happens from within. Why do things happen in the world? Because people need transformation. Jesus cleansed the temple. He does the same thing in our lives. The the scriptures say that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6. And as the temple of the Holy Spirit, Jesus comes into our temple and he is glorified there. He doesn't just come to save, he comes to transform. Romans 8:28 of course all things are working together for good, but Romans 8:29 describes what that good is. See, we think good, okay, you know, oh yeah, good. What's good? Well, good is a nice house and good is a, you know, very very large bank account and good is, you know, that's no. Good is further described in verse 29, which says for whom he foreknew These he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What is the good? That we would be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. So the temple is cleansed. Transformation begins. He saves us from hell, but he saves us for heaven. And we are saved from hell, but what we are saved unto is greater And so there is a transformative process that happens in preparation for heaven. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is sovereign. Jesus does as he wills. And he calls us to surrender our will to him. When when we do, as we do, there's a work happening and that work is us becoming like him. Unfortunately, typically the way that work, work happens is when things are, are challenging and, and things are difficult. But there's, there, if, there's, if there's one thing that we see in this, is that God is sovereign. And even though my timetable and his timetable may diverge, he is accomplishing his purpose. And one more thing. He's the potter. We're the clay. His hands never leave the clay. He is always shaping. He is always holding us. Stand with me. Jesus came to conquer and reign. But as he surrendered himself to the will of the Father... So so you and I must surrender ourselves to his will and his lordship. Pray with me. Father, thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that your word conveys to us. We thank you for all of the things, Lord, that your word contains and the promises and the assurance that it brings to our lives. Lord, may we say, as you said, not my will, but your will be done. Open our eyes, Lord, that we can see the wonderful things that your word contains. And Lord, continue to transform us and conform us into the image of Jesus Christ as we pursue, follow, and, and, uh, and are led by you uh, through your Holy Spirit. We love you, Lord and we, we acknowledge you, and we, and we praise you, and we welcome you, and we say, uh, we say you are great, and we say, Hosanna, Hosanna to the highest. Because you are worthy just because of who you are. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.